They say you can know a lot about someone by visiting their home. What would someone say about you if they came into your house? Some of you guys like, they might think I don't have a washing machine right now, right? But what would they say when they walk in your house and, and they walk through your hallway and they see the pictures on your walls and they go in your living room and they see your TV and they head into your basement and they see what's on the shelves? What would they think of you? If you came to my house, you'd learn a lot of things about us. You'd learn that we love dogs as there's dog toys just thrown all over the place and you're probably going to step on something that squeaks as you go. You walk down our hallway, you're going to see pictures of our kids when they were little and family photos on a canvas in the living room and you're going to see that we love our family. You're going to go in my basement and you're going to see that I have a very unhealthy relationship with the Kansas City Chiefs. You're going to see a lot of different things about us. What would someone think about you? This week I was goofing around online, and did you guys know that you can kind of see inside celebrities' homes? This is a really, uh, if I was a celebrity, I would never agree to this, but you, there's full websites devoted to seeing inside the homes of celebrities, and you can learn a lot about someone when you look in their home. And so here's a couple of pictures. I, they actually showed Shaq's home, you know, Shaquille O'Neal, over seven foot tall. One thing we learn about Shaq and we see inside his home is he loves sleep. And I would, too, if I was seven foot one and weighed over 300 pounds. His bed is 15 feet by 30 feet wide. I, can't, I, just, I feel like I could just swim in that thing. I would just be doing somersaults and snow angels and all kinds of stuff. But he loves sleep, and I would love sleep, too, if I slept on a Superman logo, right? How about this? Lady Gaga. Did you know Lady Gaga loves bowling? I had no idea. I mean, I know she loves outfits made of meat, but I didn't know she loved bowling. And so, yeah, so you go to Lady Gaga's house, you can bowl. How about John Travolta? Did you know John Travolta has a jumbo jet parked in his garage? I know, so he loved, it, it's just, it's kind of absurd, isn't it? Like the 740, hey, you guys want to take the, the Camaro, the Taurus, or the 747? Which one, you want to go to lunch, right? So you can learn a lot about going into someone's house. What would they learn when they went into yours? What would they find out when they walked through your man cave or your she shed or whatever it is where you keep your stuff? What would they learn about you? As we get to the book of, the end of the book of Exodus, we see that God instructs the people of Israel to build him a house. That God tells the people, he tells Moses and the people that he is wanting to build the tabernacle and it's going to be God's house among his people. What's interesting about this is when you see the instructions that God gives his people, this isn't just going to be some summer house, and this isn't going to be just a place where God goes and grabs a shower after work before he goes out with his buddies. This is going to be a place where God lives and dwells with his people. Now, you might be asking the question, why does God need a house? Like, anybody's had that thought in your mind? Like, why does God need a house? Isn't God everywhere? Isn't God the one who created the universe? Didn't God make 93 billion light years of solar systems and galaxies and beautiful planets and in and out burgers and all kinds of amazing things? Like, why does God actually need a house or, or as we or see, a tent? And it's true. God doesn't need a house. We see throughout the Bible there's the, the, the concept that God is omnipresent. Say it with me, omnipresent. That means that God is everywhere all the time. God doesn't need a house, but why does God want a house? Well, I think we find an answer if we think back to the way the greater story began. I want you to think back with me. Think back to the book of Genesis. 
Remember Genesis 1, we see that God creates everything. He creates the stars and the moon. He creates the earth and the seas. He creates animals and birds and creepy things. And then he creates us. And then he creates the garden in Eden. And in the garden was all these beautiful things. There was all of, there was, just imagine like the nature and the, and the beautiful wildlife. And, but, but most importantly of all, the most beautiful thing outside of the rainbows and waterfalls and, and all these gorgeous things was they actually lived with the presence of God. Like we were designed to live in God's presence. We were designed to live with God, for God to dwell with us. And we see this theme that runs through the book of uh, the, the Old Testament into the New Testament. We're going to see it today, that God's mission is to live among his people. And, and what we're going to see today in the tabernacle is that God wants to reinvade the lives of his people because what we had in the garden with God has been broken. See, if you guys remember back to Genesis chapter 3, mankind sinned. And what ended up happening because of mankind sinned, in the eyes of an all-holy God, they had to be exiled. They had to be banished out of the garden. And ever since then, man has been walking with that whole in his heart, men and women walking with that, that hole in their heart because they're not with God anymore. And so I, I think what we're going to see today in, in the, the story of the tabernacle is that God is wanting to step back and reinvade the lives of his people so he can live with his people. And you and I feel this today. You and I look around our world and we, we ask the question all the time, like, why are things this way? And could it be that the brokenness we see in the world and, and the challenges we see in the world, could it be that the result of that is because we are still living in exile, that we've been banished from the garden. But thankfully, God doesn't leave us there. God loves us too much to leave us there. He reinvades our space. And we see this here in the tabernacle. I love what A.W. Tozer says about this, talking about our need for the presence of God. Notice what he says. He says that our increasing restlessness is caused by being away from God's presence. And if you were with us last week, we saw that Moses, Moses is talking with God in Exodus chapter 33, and he says to God, God, I want you to go with us to the promised land. And God says, I'll go. And then Moses leans in even further. He says, God, there's one thing I want more than anything else, and that is to be near you. Show me your glory. And if you guys remember last week, we talked about that we were designed to live in God's presence. And and we, we were challenged to see where are we falling for substitutes? rather than seeking the presence of God in our lives. What we're going to see today is that God doesn't expect us to work our way to him. He works his way to us in the tabernacle. And this beautiful story of God coming to dwell with his people again. So we're going to start off in Exodus 25, and then we're going to finish the book of Exodus today. I know we made it in Exodus chapter 40. So flip with me. Exodus chapter 25. We're going to just read a few verses about the tabernacle, and then we'll... Move to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. Goat's hair. You guys got any goat's hair laying around at home? Goat's hair. Tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. 
And what we're going to see is if you guys, we're not going to have time to cover it today, but starting right there in, in chapter 25, all the way through chapter 30, we see God give instructions for this house that he's going to build. Like God gives them all these instructions for this tabernacle, and they're extremely detailed instructions. And then we get to chapter 40, and we see, uh, we get to chapter 36, I'm sorry, and we see that they begin to build the tabernacle. Now, here's what's interesting. There are almost 15 chapters, different parts of chapters, almost 15 chapters devoted to the tabernacle. How many chapters were devoted to the Ten Commandments? Do you guys remember? One. One chapter devoted to the Ten Commandments. And yeah, there's a lot about the law and the covenant and those things, but really just one. And yet we have 15 chapters devoted to this house that God is building. Like, that's a lot. Why? Why does God spend so much time focusing on his house here? Because God wants us to see something important. That, that God wants to dwell among his people but because he is an all-holy God and sin has broken the world, there are certain things that have to take place first. And there's certain ways that that tabernacle must be built first. And so God gives them these detailed instructions which teach us a lot about him. So here's the question I want you to consider today. What does the tabernacle teach us about God? Just like somebody walks in your house and, and they, they recognize that, that you, know, you love barbecue or you love the Broncos. What does someone find out when they walk through God's house, when they walk through the tabernacle? Now, I'm a visual learner, so what, what, I don't know if you guys are like me. If you guys are listening to this later online, go Google pictures of the tabernacle. But I want to show you guys some pictures. So there's been a lot of renderings, of course, we didn't have cell phones to take pictures back 3,500 years ago. So this is people's best guess of what these things look like. But here's just an overall picture of the tabernacle. And it's really pretty cool. Remember, this was a mobile population. They were moving their way to the promised land. And so God is, he, he, remember, God gives them manna. God gives them water from a rock. God gives them a set of rules. And lastly, God gives them plans for his home so God can come and live with his people. And so remember, they're living in the desert, and so it's a tent, basically, with a courtyard. And so, but each of, the, um, each of the figures you see, or we're going to talk through, have significance that teach us things about God. And so I want you to notice, if you're reading along, when you get to chapter 25, you're going to see that God begins to talk about the Ark of the Covenant. Now, how many of you guys have heard of the Ark of the Covenant before? And how many of you heard of the Ark of the Covenant because of Indiana Jones, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, actually, they did a pretty good job getting it right. Like, from what we can tell in the, in the Old Testament, if you did touch the Ark of the Covenant the wrong way, your face would melt, which is pretty much what happened in the Indiana Jones. But you see, this Ark of the Covenant, this is the, really the, the heart of the, the, the tabernacle. And so the Ark of the Covenant itself was in the tent. They divided the tent into two places. One was the holy place, and the back room was called the Holy of Holies. And this was the place that only Moses could go talk to God. This was the place that only the high priest could go in once a year. And so the Ark of the Covenant was special because the Ark of the Covenant would be where the Ten Commandments would reside. This is where there would be a pot of manna, Aaron's staff. This would be all the things that people would remember God's faithfulness. But on top of the Ark of the Covenant is what they call the mercy seat. Now, this mercy seat was covered in gold and had two cherubim angels facing each other, as you guys can see here. And this mercy seat was important because this was the place that once a year the high priest would come in and they would sprinkle blood on this mercy seat. And the blood would be sprinkled there and it would be for the forgiveness of sins for the people for that year. And so it would be a place where the sacrifice to an all-holy God was made because of the sinful act 
of man. And so this took place in the Holy of Holies, the back room that nobody else could go into. But then the next room inside the tent was what they called the holy place. And in the holy place, you had several different things. Here's one of them. It's the altar of incense. Here's a picture, that the best that they can tell, of the altar of incense. And notice they have these big rails on both sides. That way they could carry them around as they moved the tabernacle from place to place. And the altar of incense, the, the, the priests would come in and they would burn incense in the morning and in the evening. And the incense would always be burning as a fragrant offering to God. Right outside of there would be the table of showbread. So this is the table of the bread. There would be one loaf of bread brought to the table for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and the priests would later eat that bread. Then outside the table of showbread was the, the golden lampstand. Now you might notice this looks a lot like a menorah if you have any friends that are Jewish. Uh, this is um, a, the golden lampstand, and this would burn all the time. And so each of the families would go out, and they'd bring pure olive oil in, and they would burn the olive oil here all the time. And it was meant to show the light of God. The, the, the light of God always is burning. It never goes out. The, the light of God continues to burn. And so you would walk by the golden lampstand. And then uh, the tabernacle itself, let me show you a picture of the tabernacle. It's made of 10 curtains and just beautiful purple. Um, notice that there are cherubim angels that are embroidered on the curtain that goes into the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, or it goes into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is. And so they made these beautiful curtains. And then on the outside, they actually made a tent to cover it. And so um, the outside of the, the tabernacle, again, just kind of thinking through that picture I showed you of the courtyard, it's surrounded by a fence, basically. And then there's two main things you're going to see outside. One of them is the bronze altar. Now, this bronze altar is, is huge. It's seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet four and a half feet tall. And the bronze altar was where they would make the sacrifices of bulls and goats and sheep and doves and pigeons and all these things for the, for the forgiveness of sin. And so this was where the priests would make the sacrifices. But there was also a bronze basin. And the bronze basin was where the priests went and washed their hands and they washed their feet because you couldn't go in to the tent unless you were completely clean. So all of these things, God instructs the, um, the construction of from you know, chapters 25 to 30, and then chapters 36 to 40, we see that they build them together. What does this teach us about God? Like, why all these things? Notice there's places for sacrifice, and there's places to wash, and there's the lampstand, and there's this incense that's burning, and there's this table with bread on it. Like, what, what is all of this doing? What is God teaching us? I think God wants to teach us something about his character and about what it looks like when we approach God. And, and I think this is one of the realities God wants to show us. God's showing us that he is both holy and merciful. Like God is teaching us that he is a God of mercy, but that he's also a holy God. And that for the people to come and, and to interact with him, they have to come and interact with God on his terms, not our terms. And so I think each of these pieces of furniture, they, they really signify something about God's holiness and God's mercy. I just imagine you're standing outside the tabernacle, and you're looking out, and you first thing you see, if we could show that picture again of the courtyard, imagine you're standing outside, and you walk in, and the first thing you see is that altar. Like, you, instead of a welcome mat, hey, welcome home, you know, come on in, right? Bronco fans live here. No, there's like an altar, right? And it, 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 the first thing they see is that God is a holy God, that, that because of sin, like, we, our relationship with God has been separated, so we, something had to be done about it. And so the first thing you see is this altar, which shows you that God is serious about sin. 
that, that God hates sin. But as you get closer, you, you see that, that as you get into the Holy of Holies, you get to see the mercy seat in the tabernacle, which reveals God's mercy, that God forgives sin, that God loves his people. And so you have this collision, really, of God's holiness and God's mercy coming together. Now, I don't know about you, but I think sometimes we like to emphasize one or the other, don't we? We like to say, well, God is a God of love. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of justice. God is a God of holiness. And so we end up kind of emphasizing one of the two, but I think what the tabernacle shows us is God's, is God's personal attributes and character is that merciness, mercy and holiness, they run parallel to each other. These are God's characteristics. And, and God is a God of love and God is a God of mercy, but God is a, also a God of justice and sin has to be dealt with. And so God is showing us here that he is a holy, majestic, forgiving God who loves his people, but he wants to live with his people. But to live with his people, we have to approach God on his terms. We have to approach God the way that he tells us is the right way for us to approach him. And that can be hard. You know, we live in a culture, I think here in Colorado, you guys could say that it's spiritual, but it's not necessarily biblical. Like we live in a culture in the West, I think that is very spiritual, but maybe not evangelical. Like I think in, in our culture, you, you can hear a lot of people uh, talk about the, um, the universe. Oh, well, well, you know, the universe worked its way out for me. Or you'll hear people talk about vortexes and crystals and different things that are spiritual. And this idea of like, I'm finding my way to God. We, we live in a culture where a lot of people fall into like moralistic therapeutic deism, which says, well, if, if I can just do what, what I think, if I can be better than the next guy, if I can do more good than bad, then God will love me. God will accept me. Again, it's this idea. I'm like climbing a ladder to God. But I think what the tabernacle shows us is that there's no ladder to climb to God. Instead, God came down to us, which is amazing news. Like God's not asking us to meander our way up a trail to the top of the mountain. God came down the mountain to us, and he came and reinvaded our space, and he took up residence with us. He didn't ask Israel, hey, I know I gave you the Ten Commandments and all these rules. Get them right, and then I'm going to come live with you. No. He says, hey, actually, I'm going to move in next door. I'm going to build a tabernacle, and I'm going to live with you. But as I live with you, you're going to see that I'm holy and I'm merciful. You're going to see that to approach me, you have to come to me on my terms. And so I think, I think that what the tabernacle is showing us is that God is not some distant, far-off deity that just said it and forget it. God wants a personal relationship with his people. So he re-invades our space. Or as J.T. English says, he re-Edenizes our world. That he's bringing it Back. And so I think this is another thing that I want you guys to see as we kind of camp out here for a moment. Notice this God is bringing Eden back to us. Like, God, we got kicked out of Eden because of sin in the beginning, and God set forth a plan to rescue his people. And now, God, through the tabernacle, is showing us what he plans to do, and that is to bring Eden back to us. I, I can't spend much time here, but I just want to highlight a couple of things for you guys to see. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn now, you can. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 12, it says this. It says that the Garden of Eden was full, uh, was a land of good, and it was full of uh, bdellium and onyx stone and gold. Notice Exodus 25. Exodus 25 says the tabernacle shall be filled with gold and onyx, the same stones. 
In the book of Genesis chapter 2, we see that God places a tree of life in the center of the garden. What do we see in the tabernacle? The golden lampstand. What is that that to be seen as? The tree of life. Where was it at? In the center of the tabernacle. We we see in Genesis 3 verse 24 that when man got drove out of the garden because of sin, God placed two angels, two cherubim on the east entrance, not letting people in to the garden anymore because a sinner, that that sin could not be in the presence of a holy God. What is God, what, what did God have embroidered on the curtains into the holy place? How many? Two cherubim, angels. You notice what God is doing. God is re-Edenizing our world. The tabernacle is the intersection of heaven and earth. It's where God brings Eden back to us. And God is showing us that he is reclaiming his people. He is restoring his creation. And he is moving back into our neighborhood. So notice, I want you to notice what happens here. So God gives these instructions. He gives these instructions to the people. He tells them how to meticulously make this tabernacle. We see in verses in chapters 36 to 40, they begin to build this tabernacle. And then flip with me, Exodus 40. Notice this. This is going to close the book of Exodus for us. Notice this, Exodus 40. So we see verse 33. Check this out. It says that Moses and Aaron put the final touches on the tabernacle. Exodus 40, verse 33 says this, and that he, this is talking about Moses, erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. And then look at verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Did you notice that? Like the moment it was done. The moment they finished building the tabernacle and they put the fence up around it, what happened? God's presence filled the tabernacle. Now, I don't want you to miss this because this is beautiful. Again, this is, this is a beautiful thing. Like, God did not wait for them to get it right. God did not wait for the tabernacle to sit and for everybody to show that they were worthy. No, the moment they clasped the gate, it was boom! God's there. The cloud is there. God fills the tabernacle with his glory. God did not wait. God was eager to be there with his people. You guys ever been really hungry and you're at like a dinner, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. You're standing there in the kitchen and your mom or your aunt or, or somebody is getting ready to pull those rolls out of, the, out of the oven. You know what I'm talking about? And you kind of get that whiff and you're just like, you've been ready to eat your arm for like an hour, right? Because Thanksgiving dinner was supposed to start at one and now it's 3.30, but yet it's finally out. Moment those, you don't even care how hot those rolls are, are you? Do you? I mean, you're going to get burned. You and your cousins, I mean, we're just fighting to get in there and grab one of those rolls because you knew they're going to be so good. You are eager to get in there and get one for yourself. Imagine God. I just imagine, imagine God just sitting here, right? And he's, he's, he's looking at his people and he's like, okay. Ooh, they got the fence up. Okay, so close. Oh, there's the fence. Oh, they got the altar. Oh, just put the little thing. Oh, just turn it a little bit. Okay, there it is. Okay, good. They listened. All right. Okay, now they're putting the screen up. All right, it's all together. Boom, I'm there. God's presence right there with his people. God is eager to live among his people. God didn't wait for them to get it right. No, God stepped right in. See, don't miss the eagerness of God. Don't miss the eagerness of God wanting to be with you. The eagerness of God wanting to do good in your life. I love what Isaiah 42, 21 says. Notice this. It says that that God, the Lord, is a God who is eager to save. 
Like God is eager to do something for you. Like I imagine God is like sitting there and you're, he's like, oh, when are you going to ask me? Like I know what you need. I know, I know what's on your heart. When, when you gonna, okay, she looks like she's getting ready to start praying. Is she going to pray? Oh, no, no, thinking dog. Get that dog out of there. Dogs are from the devil. Like, is she, is she getting ready to pray? Like, God is ready. He's eager to jump. I love dogs, by the way. They're not from the devil. But I feel like he does use them sometimes. Like, I think God is eager to step in, right? God is eager to do good. He's eager to live with his people. Now, compare this to how we often think about God. Like, well, we often think about God differently, don't we? We have to think about God as like, well, he'll get to us when he's ready. Like, God, he, he's busy running the universe. Like, God's got hundreds of millions of stars and galaxies he's got to deal with first. But, you know, I'm on the line. I've got my ticket. It's like the DMV, right? I got my little, little triangle ticket, right, that I can't find, but I know I'm number 23 somewhere in my pocket. But God, like, God, when are you going to kind of move in my life? And I think this shows us that God is eager that God is not distant, that God is just waiting for you to get ready. Now, sometimes God moves without us. For sure he does. But I think a lot of times God is waiting for us to, for that right moment. Like imagine that moment that Nicodemus in the book of Mark climbs the tree to see God. And God is like, Nicodemus, I'm ready to do something in your life. Jesus is coming today. And so Nicodemus is trying to look over the crowd, and he's kind of, you know, I know what this is like, right? When you guys go to big crowds, you're kind of like trying to tippy-toe and find somewhere to, to look at, and he sees a tree, and I'm imagining God's going, all right, Nicodemus, yeah, there's the tree. See a tree? All right, climb that tree. Oh, he's gone. Here he goes. Nicodemus, oh, is Jesus here yet? There he is. Boom! Nicodemus is saved. He started off as Nicodemus at nighttime. He's just Nick, right? Nick and Jesus are hanging out having dinner. Like God is ready to move. He is eager to move. But are we paying attention? We sing that God is ready to move for us. And so we see this beautiful picture. The moment the tabernacle comes together, God's presence just enters the tabernacle. God lives. He reinvades our space. He dwells with his people. And so this is what is so beautiful about this. I think there's a truth here that God wants us to see, is that as we learn to, to live in God's presence, it teaches us to follow God's lead. Like, learn, like the people of Israel had to learn this. Like as they learned to live in God's presence, it taught them to follow his lead. Notice this in chapter 40, verse 36. Notice this. It says this. Throughout all their journey, wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then the, it did not set out until the day it was taken up. So imagine. Like imagine you looked at the tabernacle and you would see the cloud of God's presence over the tabernacle. God was there. Like, you'd wake out in your tent in the morning, and you'd be like, God's still, yep, he's still there. Like, he was there, always there. And then, when it was time to go, the cloud would rise up, and that meant, all right, fellas, it's time to pack this thing up, move on to the next place. And so they learned to trust God's presence to lead them where they needed to go. Now, some of you might think that's actually easier, right? Like, like in my life, like, I just wish God would send the cloud. Like, God, which one of my neighbors am I supposed to invite to church? Like, I don't know. Oh, there's the cloud. It's over at Rick's house. All right, I'm going to Rick's today. Right? Like, God, will you just send a banner plane and tell me where, what job I should take, right? Like, we want God to send us a sign. Well, they had a sign. They still fell down all the time. They still forgot all the time. But here was this cloud that would lead them where they needed to go. And I think it teaches us that living in God's presence teaches us to follow his lead. We begin to trust him, to know that he wants what's best for us. And notice, God didn't ask him when it was ready to go. 
God wasn't like, hey, you guys ready? Did you guys brush your teeth yet? Like, did you iron your clothes? You guys ready to go? No, God, he knew when it was time to go. And I think there's a reality here is that God, God is not a server. God is not a butler. God is not a flight attendant. Like, God doesn't come around just to make sure we're comfortable and our drink is topped off. Like, God knows where we need to go every single time, and he's going to lead us there. He's going to take us where we need to go, and sometimes that means he's going to take us the long way. You guys remember when we talked a few weeks ago when God rescued the people out of Egypt? And instead of going straight to the promised land, what do they do? They took the long route, and they end up going to the Red Sea. And why do they do that? Because God knew if they saw the Philistines, these big, bad, gnarly dudes, they would want to run back to Egypt. And so God took them the long way. Sometimes God takes us the long way, too, and praise God for that. We're going to see next week that God takes them a very, a very long way till they get to the promised land. But in the midst of this, God knows where he wants to take us. So here's the question I want you to ask yourself. When you think about God, do you think about God as someone who is eager to be with you? Like, do you think about God as someone who loves you so much he wants to live with you? Or do you think of God as just this kind of far-off God who, he's there, and he'll get to you when he's ready? And do you also, do you think of God as a genie in a bottle? Do you think of God as a, as a, as a, as a server who's just here to, to top off your drink when you need it? Or do you think of God as the one who knows exactly where you need to go, wants to live with you and ask for you just to follow, to learn to follow? him. So I want you to notice what happens next. Notice this in verse 38. This is the last verse of the book of Exodus, which we've been in for a while. Notice this. It says, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now I want you to think of this. How, how many years, do you guys know, how many years did Israel wander in the wilderness? 40 years. Now, they weren't supposed to wander for 40 years. Come back next week and we'll tell you why. A little teaser. They're not quite done yet. But for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. Why did, did God, or they wandered in the wilderness? Did God ever leave them? No. Like we see right there in verse 38, Moses tells us that the whole time, for 40 years, God was there in the day by cloud and in the night by fire. God's presence was always there. God loved to dwell with his people. I think God wants to show us just in this thing right here that God is faithful. And he is faithful even when we're not, which Israel was faithful a lot, not faithful a lot. But that God is faithful because he's always there. And this is one of the great promises we have of Scripture. And this is the promise that I hope all of you stand on, is that God promises to never leave us and to never forsake us and to always be with us. And the Bible tells us that God is never more than an arm's reach away. God is faithful, and he always will be. No matter how dark things seem, no matter hard things are, no matter far God seems away, he's not. He's there. We may not be able to see him by cloud or by fire anymore, but he's there. And this is the promise that he is there. So here's the question. What does this mean for us? We're reading about a tent that was 3,500 years old. What does that mean for us? Like, is this tabernacle still around? Can we go take a trip and see it? Is it on the Holy Land tour? We want to see God's presence too. Well, we know it's not around anymore. We see that King Solomon builds a temple for God later, and that's not there anymore. So where is God's presence now? Well, thankfully, John tells us 
In John chapter 1, verse 14. You can feel free to turn there if you want. John 1:14. Notice what John says. He says this. And the word, Jesus, became flesh. And what? Dwelt among us. And we have seen the glory. We've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we saw this last week, and we said that Jesus is the picture of God's grace and God's glory. So when Moses said, show me your glory, God, you and I can see God's glory through Jesus. But don't miss what John 1.14 also says about God living with his people. It says that he came and dwelt among us. And the word for dwelt is, I told you this guys last week, so if you guys took notes, you remember, tabernacled. So John says that Jesus came and has tabernacled with his people. But yeah, Jesus, God's presence isn't just found in a tent anymore. It's not just found in a temple. God's presence was found in Jesus who came and stepped into this earth and revealed the glory and the presence of God. And I think what this shows us is that everything we see about the tabernacle and everything we've seen so far in the book of Exodus all points to Jesus. That we don't need a mercy seat anymore. We don't need a bronze altar to sacrifice a bull to sprinkle blood on a mercy seat to get forgiveness of sins because Jesus has been the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We don't need a bronze basin to wash our hands or our feet because we need to get clean before we can go into the tent. We don't have to have a, a veil holding us back from going into the Holy of Holies because the veil has been torn. Because of Jesus, we now have full presence and full relationship and full access to God. And that is great news. Jesus has come and fulfilled all of it. And all of this was pointing forward to Jesus. And we see that God's mercy and holiness isn't found at a tabernacle anymore. God's mercy and holiness were intersected and collided at the cross. And for us that have said yes to Jesus, we have been washed clean and forgiven and given new life and given the power to now follow God's plan, which he says is best for our lives. It's a beautiful picture. It's beautiful that when we were in the wilderness, God didn't say, work your way to me. God says, I'm coming to reinvade and bring my home to you. So where's God's presence now? Like, Jesus came and brought God's presence. So where is God's presence now? This is the most ridiculous part. Like, this is the best part. John 14, notice what... Jesus says in John 14, Jesus is getting ready to tell his disciples that he's getting ready to be arrested. He's getting ready to to lose his life. And he says, and they're freaking out going, well, hold on, that can't happen. And he says this, John 14, he says, I'm a different king than you were expecting, but I'm the king that you need. But before I go, I'm never going to leave you on your own. Notice this, verse 14, or John 14, verse 16, he says this, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he, what? Dwells with you and will be in you. Notice this verse, that word helper. Notice that's capitalized. Any English teachers in here? You English teachers are like, wait, that's capitalized. What does that mean? That's somebody's name, right? This helper, this is the Holy Spirit. Like, he's not just sending somebody. Like, yeah, he'll be around, you know, two to four, right? Just kind of be home, like a cable installer, right? He gets there about six. No, he's like, I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit, you are going to know him. He's going to dwell in you. He's going to live with you and live in you. And then in Acts chapter 1, 
Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus rises from the grave. Jesus is with his disciples for 40 days. And then he says, okay, guys, I'm getting ready to go. And they're like, wait, wait, wait. Like, I thought we were going to take the world over. I thought we were going to storm the, the castle on our steeds. Like, let's go. And he's like, no, you guys aren't ready yet. He says this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but you will receive, when I leave, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying the re-Edenization of the world takes place because the power of God through the Holy Spirit lives in you. You now have the power in you. You now have the presence of God in you. God isn't just living in a temple or a tabernacle. God isn't, his presence isn't just found in Jesus. God's presence is now found in you. Like, how ridiculous is that? You don't have to seek. God doesn't live out there. God lives in here when you've said yes to Jesus. And notice this. Notice what Paul says about this in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Notice this. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Some of you heard this verse from, like, your aunt who told you not to get a tattoo, right, because you're the temple of God. Now, this is, like, the idea, like, we, y'all, if you're from Texas, us, Ewans, if you're from Chicago, like all of us together are the temple of God. Are you the temple of God? Yeah. Are we the temple of God? Yes. Like God's spirit lives in us. This is why it's so important that we are the church. We aren't these lone wolf people trying to do our own thing and trying to figure it out on our own. No. We are God's people. God's spirit now doesn't just live in a tent. He lives in the church, in us. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So here's the question that I want to end with as we wrap up. What do we do about it? How do we live? God's spirit isn't just in a tent or a, te a temple. God's spirit's in us, in me individually, but in us as the church. What do we do about it? And how do we live? I want to give a little props to the Village Church in Dallas, Texas. They gave me some great thoughts to help me think through some of these action steps that we can take. And I think there's really two things. There's really two things that we can do to, to think through how we live. And here's the first one, is that we have to become faithfully present. Like, how do we live out being the presence of God? How do we live out being the church where God's spirit dwells and lives in us? Well, we have to become faithfully present. And here's what I mean. Like, if you're here in the room, say, say you, 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 take, take the guys, for instance. Like, guys, you have a job. Guys, maybe you're married and you have a wife. Guys, maybe you have a family and you have kids at home or you have nieces and nephews or you run a business or whatever it is. Whatever you have, God has given you dominion. He's given you a garden. Imagine just a little plot of land that he's given you, he's given you control over. Ladies, you guys, maybe you, you have a job or you're part of different groups or you're a mom or you're a wife and you have this little garden that God has given you to, to till and to water and to take care of. We see that God made us in his image back in the book of Genesis, and God has given us this world to care for. So, so now you have this little area to, to manage. Are you faithfully managing it well? Like husbands, are, are you faithfully present in your marriage? And I don't mean you're not looking around. I mean, are you faithfully there raising up and watering and nurturing your, your family so that they can flourish, so that they can be the best versions of themselves? Like, ladies, are you, are you faithfully living in the place that God has given you where you can be present and you can lead people to experience their new life in Jesus? Are we there? 
or are we checked out? Like we have to become people who are faithfully present. And we might recognize in our life that like maybe I'm, I'm present at home, but at work I'm kind of checked out. Or somebody might say at work that, well, he's just, you know, he's not really there all the time. Like, and when we recognize that we're not faithfully present, then we need to confess that to God. We say, God, I'm sorry that I haven't been faithfully present. I'm going to repent of that, and I'm going to turn, and I'm going to become the person God has called me to be at home and at work and in my friend circles and at church. Am I faithfully present where God has planted me? Where am I at? Because God has given us the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. God is present inside of us so that we can be present in our community to help bring God's kingdom down here. So that's the first thing, guys. Are you, think about your life, think about work, think about your relationships, think about home. Are you faithfully present? And if you're not faithfully present, then let's confess that to God. We're not perfect. We're never going to nail this thing 100%. But what we can do is we can recognize when we've fallen short and we can faithfully ask God to move and to change our hearts. That's number one. And the second one is this. We have to learn to courageously follow God's promptings. See, here's the beautiful reality of God's spirit living in you is throughout the day, God's spirit is prompting you to move and to act. Like God's spirit wants to move. God's spirit is doing things. God is changing hearts and encouraging lives and doing all kinds of things. And God has invited us to be a part of it. He prompts you to do it. Like, have you ever just been sitting there and you had that thought, like, I really need to call, I really need to call Rich and just check in on Rich. I just need to call Rich and encourage Rich. Like, you ever had that thought in your mind? I know you do. Like, could it be that that's the Holy Spirit prompting you to call your friend? Like, have you ever, have you ever had just that kind of thought, like, man, I really need to invite my neighbor over, really need to invite them over for dinner or, or ask them to come to church or talk to the coworker across the aisle? You ever had that thought? Could it be that that's the Holy Spirit prompting you to step in and engage in what God is doing? You ever had somebody in your life call you when you're just in a really discouraged place? And all of a sudden, your phone rings, and it's a buddy, and you really don't want to talk, but you answer it, and they say, hey, man, just want you to know, I'm praying for you. You've been on my heart lately. Have you ever wondered, like, wow, that's a great coincidence. There are no coincidences with God. God put you on that person's heart, and they were faithfully courageous to pick up the phone and call you. So are we being courageous to follow God's prompting in our lives? We have to learn to train ourselves to do it. Because I can imagine the Holy Spirit's thinking, sitting there thinking, all right, guys, you ready to have some fun today? You ready to have some fun? Because I'm ready to change some lives today. Are you guys in? Are you in? Because I'm ready to go. And he gives us those promptings to follow. So how, how do we live out the spirit of God in our life? How, how do we live this out? Like, when we dismiss it, we, we miss out on the blessings that God has invited us to take a part of. But when we live into it, we realize that God is going to open more and more opportunities for us to walk through and live in this beautiful blessing he's given us as being the people of God. So how do we live this out? We become faithfully present, and we courageously follow God's lead. So here's my challenge for you as we wrap up, as I invite the band back on stage, as the worship team back on stage. Here is, here is the challenge for you is pay attention. Like, where is God prompting you this week? Like, who, who has God put on your mind this week? Like, when you're sitting there, maybe you're in your quiet time, or you're driving to work, or you're doing something on your computer, and all of a sudden, it comes to mind, I need to call that person. Or I really need to invite my, my neighbor over for dinner. 
pay attention because that's probably God going, okay, you guys ready to have some fun? I think God is inviting us into something that is well beyond anything we could ever imagine on our own. And the reality is that we can go home, we can live our lives, and kind of be separate from each other. And we can go home, we can watch great movies, great stories. We can read books with fantastic tales. We can just kind of drown out the noise with all these things. And all the while, God is inviting us into the greatest story the world has ever known. And he has put his spirit inside of you. He's inviting you to take part. And as we pay attention, and as we let the spirit live through us, we begin to see that God changes us from the inside out. And God wants to use us to bring the kingdom of heaven down here. So church, let's be the church. Let's be God's people. Let's be men and women and kids and teenagers and people who let the Spirit of God live through us. And as we do, He won't just change our lives in this church. He will change our world one life at a time. Would you pray with me?